Are you studying for your board exams and looking for low-cost, high-quality practice questions? Well, look no further than the High Yield Family Medicine Patreon page. For just $5 a month, you'll gain instant access to over 100 board-style practice questions, each complete with detailed explanations and focusing on all the high-yield topics you need to know for test day. Don't miss out on this opportunity to elevate your studying and enhance your knowledge and skills in family medicine. Sign up now at patreon.com slash highyieldfamilymedicine. Link in the description. Hello, and welcome to episode two of the High Yield Family Medicine Podcast. In this episode, we'll be doing an overview of some of the most high yield things to remember as it pertains to prenatal care. Before we get into the details of caring for the pregnant patient, it's important to remember that 50% of all pregnancies are unplanned or unintended, so all physicians should take great care before prescribing any medications or imaging studies that may be harmful to the unborn baby. Easy points on the test are when they give a clinical scenario where you may feel tempted to order a CT scan or abdominal x-ray. But remember that if the patient is a woman of reproductive age, you're going to want to obtain a beta HCG level prior to ordering any of those tests, or otherwise opt for non-ionizing imaging studies such as MRI or ultrasound. Okay, so the initial prenatal visit is typically done around 8 weeks from conception and should begin with an assessment of the last menstrual period, or the LMP. The estimated due date can be ascertained from the LMP using the following calculation. Take the first day of the LMP, subtract three months, and add seven days. So for example, if the first day of the last menstrual period was June 1st, then subtract three months, which brings you to March 1st, then add seven days, which is March 8th and that's approximately when the baby is expected to come. This calculation only works though if the following criteria are met. The date of the LMP is certain, the woman has regular normal menses, there has been no contraception use in the last year, and if there has been no bleeding since the LMP. Sometimes it's difficult to ensure all of these criteria are met, So an ultrasound is typically done at the first prenatal visit to confirm the gestational age. It's important to note that ultrasound is an accurate predictor for gestational age earlier in the pregnancy, and the longer you wait into the second and third trimesters, it becomes less and less reliable. At the first prenatal visit, there's going to be a lot of labs that are ordered. CBC, hepatitis B surface antigen, HIV testing, syphilis screening with a rapid plasma antigen, rubella antibody titers, blood type and RH status with antibody screening, pap smear, cervical swab for gonorrhea and chlamydia, and urinalysis with urine culture. So one by one, let's go through each of these tests and discuss some potential next step type scenarios that like to show up on NBME tests. If the CBC shows that the mom is anemic with a hemoglobin less than 10.5, recommend a therapeutic trial of iron supplements. If she's severely anemic, further workup would be needed to identify the cause. Hepatitis B surface antigen. If it's positive, this means the mom is infectious, so you want to do some LFTs and hepatitis serology studies to determine if this is chronic or active hepatitis. 
Then, when the baby is born, you must treat the baby with hepatitis immunoglobulins as well as the routine Hep B vaccine. It's important to know that about 90% of infants who contract Hep B develop chronic hepatitis, so this treatment is crucial to minimize that risk. If the rubella titers come back negative, this means they are non-immune. So, would you want to vaccinate them for rubella in this case? No, never give live attenuated vaccines to pregnant women. Wait until after birth to vaccinate. In the meantime, they should just avoid anyone who could be sick. RH factor. This is a whole other discussion on its own, but I'll give the basic facts here that you need to know. If a mom is RH negative, but the dad is RH positive, the dad's RH genes may be inherited by the baby, and the baby's red blood cells will express the RH protein on its surface. To mom, this is a foreign protein, and the mom will generate antibodies against the baby's RH protein, which can lead to hemolytic anemia for the baby. Usually, it does not cause problems on the first baby, but it will cause problems on the second baby and every baby after who has RH. So, if a mom is RH negative and the RH status of the dad is positive or unknown, the treatment is to give Rogam at 28 weeks. Rogam is RH immunoglobulins that suppress the mom's immune system from being able to develop antibodies to RH. Rogam is given to eligible RH negative moms at 28 weeks or if there's some sort of event that causes mixing of blood between the mom and the baby, such as trauma, obstetrical complications, or invasive procedures like a cerclage. And since I mentioned it here, I'll just briefly explain what a cerclage is. A cerclage is basically when you stitch the cervix closed in order to prevent a preterm delivery in a woman who is at high risk, such as those with a short cervix, or if they have a history of prior preterm deliveries. And just to wrap up the RH talk, if the baby is born and found to be RH positive, then you'd give another dose of Rogam to the mom. That was a lot of info, so if you need to hear it again, just rewind one minute until you get it down. Okay, HIV. The first thing you need to do to screen for HIV is an ELISA, which stands for Enzyme-Linked Immunosorbent Assay, which basically tests for antibodies in the blood. If this preliminary test is positive, it does not necessarily mean that the patient has HIV, and a follow-up test must be done with either Western blot or PCR. If the confirmatory test is positive, the mom should be placed on triple therapy anti-HIV meds. If they have a low viral load at the time of labor, the mom can safely have a natural vaginal delivery without worrying about transmission. However, if the viral load is over 1,000, then they should be recommended to have an elective C-section to reduce the risk of transmission. And if for some reason HIV is missed and is only detected when the mom is already in labor, then IV zidovidine can be given while she's in labor. And jumping the gun here a little bit since this is a prenatal episode, but while we're on the topic of HIV, the CDC and the American Academy of Pediatrics recommend that moms who are HIV positive should never breastfeed their babies for risk of transmission, regardless of what type of antiretroviral therapy they take. Okay, let's talk about syphilis. Syphilis testing can be done with RPR or VDRL. These are both nonspecific tests, so if it's positive, it warrants further testing with treponemal antibody testing. If this is positive, then treat with penicillin G. 
a high yield thing they like to test on. What antibiotic do you treat if the mom has syphilis, but she is allergic to penicillin? The answer is still penicillin. You just have to sensitize them in advance. Gonorrhea is known to cause preterm labor and blindness, so the treatment is one dose of IM ceftriaxone. And chlamydia is known to cause blindness and pneumonia, so the treatment is azithromycin. And remember, gonorrhea and chlamydia are oftentimes co-infected, so it's common to treat both unless one of them has been excluded. Okay, pap smear. If a pap smear is positive, the next step is to wait until after the baby is born before doing any additional testing. The only reason you would want to do anything during the pregnancy is if the cancer is highly invasive and further testing would alter management, which is a different story. In general though, if the pap smear shows atypical squamous cells of unknown significance, just repap after the pregnancy. And if the pap shows low or high grade squamous epithelial lesions, then do a colposcopy after the pregnancy. And finally, for the initial prenatal visit, if the urine culture is positive, then you must treat it, even if they are asymptomatic. This is because UTIs can develop into pyelonephritis, which can be devastating for both the mom and the baby. And what antibiotics would you choose to treat asymptomatic bacteriuria in a pregnant woman? You would want to choose something that won't harm the baby, so either nitrofurantoin, sulfasoxazole, or cephalexin would all be fine, and the duration would be for 3 to 7 days. Moving on, at around 10 to 13 weeks, you can screen for nuchal translucency. This is basically using an ultrasound to measure the thickness of a collection of fluid in between tissue layers in the back of the baby's neck. If it's positive, it may indicate trisomy 21 but it's not definitive, and further testing may be warranted if the mom chooses. One test that is often done is the quadruple screen, which is performed around 16 to 18 weeks. The quadruple screen is extremely high yield and tends to come up on a lot of multiple shelf exams, so pay attention and make sure you burn these into your memory. The quadruple screen is a blood test that measures the levels of four different compounds in the mother's serum maternal serum alpha-fetal protein, or AFP, beta-HCG, estriol, and inhibin A. And based on the levels of these four tests, you can infer different disorders that the baby might have. So let's go through them one by one. For Down syndrome, trisomy 21, AFP is low, beta-HCG is high, estriol is low, and inhibin A is high. For Edwards syndrome, trisomy 18, AFP is low, beta-HCG is low, estriol is low, and inhibin A is normal. For Patau syndrome, trisomy 13, everything will be normal except for a low beta-HCG. For neural tube defects, abdominal wall defects, or multiple gestation, Everything will be normal except for an elevated AFP. Some of this can be intuitive, which makes it a little bit easier to remember, but some of the explanations are pretty complicated, so I, I won't go into it here. One thing I found easy to remember is that amniotic fluid contains AFP, so it makes sense if there's multiple gestation, then there will be more amniotic fluid, 
which will lead to more AFP. Uh, likewise, if there's any sort of a neural tube defect, like spina bifida or any abdominal wall defects, then there's more of a chance of AFP spilling into the mother's blood without affecting the other levels. But to remember all the other stuff, I suggest rewinding back if you have to, write down a table, come up with mnemonics, do whatever you need to do to remember the levels and the quadruple screen because they're very high yield and will show up one way or another on your exams. It's important to remember that the quadruple screen is a screening tool and not capable of making a definitive diagnosis. For that, you would need to use a gold standard diagnostic tool like chronic villa sampling or amniocentesis. And these tests can be offered to women at high risk such as those with prior affected pregnancies. Typically, chorionic villa sampling is done at 10 to 12 weeks, while amniocentesis is done after 15 weeks gestation and neither of these procedures are without complications. Another high yield thing to remember is that women over 35 who are pregnant are at increased risks of having babies with chromosomal abnormalities. Moving on, at around 24 to 28 weeks, you will do the diabetic screening test known as the glucose challenge test, or GCT. This is where you have a fasting woman drink a solution containing 50 grams of glucose, then measure her blood glucose levels after one hour. If her blood glucose is greater than 140, it is considered an abnormal result, in which case they go on to the glucose tolerance test, or GTT, where they consume a solution containing 100 grams of glucose, then measure her glucose levels at one, two, and three hours. If two out of three of these results are abnormal, then a diagnosis of gestational diabetes is made. There's also an option for a two-hour GTT where you drink a 75-gram solution, then test blood after two hours. So remember, first it's GCT, then GTT. GCT is the one-hour screening test, and GTT is the conformatory test, which can be either the three-hour test or the two-hour test. And some important things to remember for gestational diabetes is that it not only impacts the pregnancy, but also places the woman at higher risk of developing type 2 diabetes later in life. So they should be screened postpartum. And since chronologically speaking, we're at the 28 week mark, I'll take this time to remind you again that this is when eligible RH negative mothers would receive Rogam. All right, so moving on to the third trimester, as we get closer to childbirth, it's important to screen for maternal colonization of group B strep. This is done with a vaginal rectal swab at around 35 weeks. And if women are positive, then they are treated with intrapartum antibiotics at the time of rupture of membranes. And which antibiotic would you choose to use in this case? Either penicillin or ampicillin is okay too. Now, if a woman had previously had group B strep in a urine culture earlier in the pregnancy, it is not necessary to perform a swab, and you could just empirically treat intrapartum. Similarly, if a woman has had a previous pregnancy complicated by group B strep colonization, or if the group B strep status is not known at the time of rupture of membranes, then empirical intrapartum treatment is also recommended. Sometimes on the test, they won't give you the gestational age, of the patient. Instead, they'll just tell you uh, a measurement of her fundal height 
And you, using that, you should be able to ascertain approximately the gestational age. So a good rule of thumb is that after 20 weeks, you could estimate the gestational age by using a measuring tape to measure the length in centimeters from the pubic symphysis to the top of the uterus. So for example, if you're measuring 32 centimeters for fundal height, um, you could approximate that to about 32 weeks. And a quick and dirty estimation is that if the fundal height is at the level of the umbilicus, that's about 20 weeks. And finally, for vaccines, we already mentioned that pregnant women should never receive live attenuated vaccines, such as MMR, varicella, or the intranasal influenza vaccine. The trivalent influenza vaccine is safe at any stage of pregnancy, provided there are no allergies to any of its components. And all women should receive the Tdap vaccine between 27 and 36 weeks gestation, regardless of when their last Tdap was. Okay, that was a lot of information, so feel free to listen to it again to cement everything we discussed. Now, let's see how we're doing with a few practice questions. 1. A 28-year-old primigravid woman is at 8 weeks gestation based on her LMP. However, upon further questioning, she had some light spotting about a week ago that lasted less than one day. What is the most accurate way to estimate her gestational age? A. Measuring her fundal height and comparing it to her LMP. B. First trimester ultrasound. C. Second trimester ultrasound. Or D. Quantitative beta-HCG level. Answer. B. Out of all of these options, a first trimester ultrasound is the most accurate way of measuring gestational age. 2. Which of the following tests or procedures is correctly associated with the time frame in which it should be done? A. Asymptomatic bacteriuria at 8 weeks. B. Quadruple screen at 12 weeks. C. Amniocentesis at 14 weeks. Or D. Glucose challenge test at 18 weeks. Answer. A. Asymptomatic bacteriuria should be obtained at the initial prenatal visit. Quadruple screen should be done at 16 to 18 weeks. Glucose challenge test should be done at 24 to 28 weeks. And an amniocentesis should only be done if there is high suspicion of possible chromosomal abnormalities and should not be performed prior to 15 weeks gestation. 3. Which of the following women should receive a dose of Rogam? A. A G1P1 RH positive mother at 28 weeks. B. A non-sensitized RH negative woman who just had a spontaneous abortion at 16 weeks. C. An RH positive mother who just gave birth to an RH positive baby. Or D an RH-negative woman who is planning to become pregnant with an RH-positive man? Answer B. RH-negative mothers may be susceptible to RH incompatibility with their unborn child and should be screened for RH antibodies. If the antibodies are negative, then they need Rogam at 28 weeks to prevent the mom's immune system from developing antibodies to RH. 
The woman in this answer choice had a spontaneous abortion at 16 weeks, which is a traumatic event that likely caused blood to mix between the mom and the baby. Thus, she should receive Rogam within 72 hours. 4. A 24-year-old woman is at 34 weeks gestation and comes into the emergency department. You determine that she is in preterm labor and have to make a decision about her group B strep prophylaxis. Upon further questioning, she has one healthy child with no known history of group B strep disease. What is the most appropriate next step? A. Urgent vaginal rectal swab for group B strep. If positive, initiate prophylaxis. B. She is not at 35 weeks, so group B strep testing is not indicated yet, and she should not receive prophylaxis. C. Her first child has no history of group B strep disease, therefore prophylaxis is not indicated. Or D. All women in preterm labor should receive group B strep prophylaxis if their group B strep status is unknown. Answer D. All women in preterm labor should receive group B strep prophylaxis if their group B strep status is unknown. Ideally, you would want to test with a vaginal rectal swab at 35 to 37 weeks, but since she didn't make it to 35 weeks, her current colonization status is unknown. Therefore, you should treat her as you would with any other patient whose group B strep status is unknown.